The next thing I know is I wake up and I just remember like something bad happened to me last night. Somebody hurt me. This is Carrie Lowe's story. Carrie did everything, quote unquote, right. She reported right away. Her legal team says police systematically mishandled her case. Meanwhile, her attackers remain at large. I'm Maggie Rahr, and this is Carrie Lowe versus. Available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Brent Bambury. This is Day 6. Unrelenting flames in Canada. Toxic plumes of smoke billowing across the country. Taking on an apocalyptic-like haze. So thick you can taste it. But what's the real risk, and how do we track it? Where will the smoke go next? The complex science of tracking particulate. That's coming up on Day 6. Today... The Saudis buy into pro-golf. There is a level of of moral relativism. The ethical choices pro-golfers face under Saudi sponsorship. Rowan Atkinson loses faith in electric vehicles. He's no climate scientist. Why the EV is better than Mr. Bean believes. And putting your life on the Broadway stage. It's still at base about the city I know and love and grew up in. Tony nominee Sharon Washington on the creation of New York, New York. All today on Day 6, the Start Spreading the News edition. And it's been so stressful, that's all I can say, you know, worried about the community back home, you know. And it's a long, tiring day for us since the evacuation. I'm Everyone glad I just get out now. of other people, yeah. you know, parents, sister, brother, auntie, uncles, grandparents, you know. So I hope uh, they all are in good hands and good safe, you know. Sarah Icebound and Charlie otter from the Cree community of Waswanapi in northern Quebec. They are part of a group of about a 1,000 people who were evacuated from their homes earlier this week. That's nearly half the community. This week, more than 400 wildfires left 20,000 people displaced all across the country. There are active wildfires in nine provinces and two territories, putting Canada on track for our worst ever wildfire season. And even if you weren't near the fires, in many places, you could still feel the effects. I thought I would just wear a mask, but it's uh, it's worse than I thought. Our eyes are watery all the time. Yeah, it's been hard to breathe. A lot of headaches, a lot of tiredness. If this holds out for the rest of the summer, it will be a hard, slow summer. The smoke from fires in Quebec pushed a thick yellow haze over much of the northeastern United States. Flights were grounded, Broadway performances were shut down, and Major League Baseball and WNBA games were postponed because of the smoke. And if this year's fire events become the norm in the future, we may need to get used to checking the smoke forecast like we do the weather. Jelena Bennett is the spokesperson for Blue Sky Canada, a smoke forecasting research project. Jelena, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning, Brent. Thanks for having me. I know you've been getting a lot of questions from members of the public this week. What are people asking you? Yes, we've had a lot of responses from the public, especially a lot from our users who are just wondering, how does our smoke forecast work? But also some specific questions like wondering, why is there a lot of smoke in my area when there isn't a lot of smoke in other areas? Specifically with what's going on in New York right now or this past week, there's been a lot of smoke in New York, but maybe some less smoke in some major Canadian cities. 
Well, let me amplify one of those questions because I'm in Toronto, but when I look at the news from New York City and the images from New York, it looks like it's worse there than it is here. So my untrained mind is wondering, did the smoke go over my head and then land in New York City? So when we say smoke going over our heads, that of course is a possibility when smoke just might exist in an upper area of the atmosphere. Winds can pass over a fire and that wind can pick up some smoke with it and take it in its general direction and at its general speed. And so over uh, Canada right now, we see that we have some winds uh, and specifically over those big Quebec fires, we have winds coming from the north created by some pressure gradients in the area. And a pressure gradient can just look like a low pressure system and a high pressure system sitting side by side and having wind in between them. And that's the case right now. We see that there's been a low pressure system sitting on the eastern coast of Canada and the northeastern coast of the United States, kind of in the main area. And this is really the driving factor of making those winds pick up the smoke right over the fires in Quebec, bring them by these major Canadian cities, and then kind of deposit all the smoke over by the New York City area. So so clearly there's a lot of data that you have to input into your model in order to get some kind of a forecast to indicate what things will be like on the ground for people who are consuming your forecast. How hard is it to do smoke forecasting compared to forecasting the weather? Right. So smoke smoke forecasting is actually quite intertwined with weather forecasting, just because, like I was saying, it's reliant on the weather that exists in the in the atmosphere currently and in the next couple of days. Right. It's it's moving around because of the weather. Um, But the the tricky thing with smoke forecasting is that you can't just see where it goes and how high it is and how low it is. You also have to see what its concentration is. And this is especially important for human health. And now there, there are a couple of things in our, our model, our Blue Sky Canada model, that prevents concentration from being perfectly accurate within an area of a couple kilometers. Um, and this is just the way that our model is built, but also the timing of our model's runs and how our, our detection of fires from satellites being fed into the model, which is then run, which takes a couple of hours, which is then output into our firesmoke.ca map, um, might miss some data or have too much smoke in the map or have too little smoke in the map. And so the direction of the smoke is fairly accurate to forecast, but the concentration can be a little Let's talk about the map that you, that you publish because that's how you get your forecasts out. If I'm looking at that map, what am I seeing and how do I know what it means? Yeah. So when you open up firesmoke.ca, you'll have to go and actually click on a little bit of a map icon and that takes you to the smoke forecast. And it'll be just a big picture of North America when you're looking at it and you'll see colorful smoke spreading around in a box, a lot of yellow orange and some brown smoke moving around. And so when you're looking at this move, it can be quite mesmerizing, but it is important to note that this is the smoke forecast for ground level concentrations of particulate matter at size 2.5 micrograms per meters cubed. And so this sounds this sounds kind of complicated, but right. the, this is a type of uh, pollution particle that is output by fires. And because of its impacts on human health, when it can be deeply inhaled to the lungs, we thought it best to be forecasting casting just ground level because that's really the the level of smoke that impacts humans the most. And, and so your, your map includes Canada and the United States, but, but apparently people are seeing smoke from Canada in many other places in the world right now outside of North America. How far can smoke travel? 
yes, people are seeing it. I've, I've heard reports that it's been going as far as Norway. Right. Smoke can really travel as far as it is allowed by the winds that exist, uh, depending on how high concentrated it is, because smoke can spread out and then become super low concentration in Canada. And then if it's spread far away, you might not even notice that there's smoke in your area. But because of the volume of smoke that's being output by these fires and then the winds that carry it far away, if it's being carried by a very fast wind, it can spread super far before uh, dispersing out and kind of uh, lowering its concentration and making it not noticeable. Jelena, this week, as you know, it's been a remarkable week. Many cities uh, canceled outdoor activities. Public events are postponed. There were health risks. There were economic consequences. In some cases, flights were delayed. Do you think that we're going to need to become more familiar with smoke forecasts as individuals living our lives the same way we do with, with weather forecasts now? Well, this really is dependent on how the fire seasons go in the next couple of years. This year, it's been quite a crazy season so early in the season, right? May was crazy and June right now is crazy. And this is kind of unprecedented to see this much so early. But as we are looking at climate data and seeing how the climate is changing, we notice that these types of uh, weather events that have caused such a crazy fire season, so these warm and dry patterns that have been covering Canada, um, the atmospheric conditions that create the warm and dry events are likely to become more common. And then those impacts on fires obviously are more frequent as well. And so the smoke forecasts likely are not going away. Jelena Bennett, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Jelena Bennett is the spokesperson for Blue Sky Canada, a smoke forecasting research project. Still to come on day six, how Tim Robinson's sketch comedy, I Think You Should Leave, nails our angry moment. Please let me go first, I'm doing something. Here are some other stories we're keeping an eye on this weekend. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau paid a surprise visit to Ukraine this morning. Ukraine is gearing up for a long-anticipated offensive to take back territory seized when Russia invaded nearly 16 months ago. Meanwhile, David Johnston resigned abruptly last night as special rapporteur on foreign interference. The move comes 10 days after Parliament passed a motion calling on Johnston to resign. Opposition parties have voted three times for a public inquiry into foreign interference, but there is no indication yet the government will support one. And It's not without the realm of possibility. I believe that strongly in the case of of um, finding a solution here where we do not exclude uh, parents in their child's life. New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs says he's willing to risk an election over changes to the province's policy on protecting LGBTQ students. Education Minister Bill Hogan announced changes to policy 713 on Thursday. Among other things, teachers and staff are no longer obliged to respect a student's chosen names and pronouns if the student is under 16 and does not have parental consent. Eight government members, including six cabinet ministers, spoke out publicly against the changes, but they do not appear prepared to bring down the government over the issue. On my show, nothing's off limits. Fighting's a lost art, but if I smell blood, I go in for the kill. And if you start to win, I go on my phone. 
That's the opening sketch for the latest season of I Think You Should Leave with Tim Robinson. Season three dropped last week on Netflix, and there's a good chance you've caught a moment of the show through an online meme because Tim Robinson's face is just so memeable. He has these two little eyes, <laughs> this like big no- sort of big nose and big ears. And he just like squinches and scrunches and like moves around his face. And he uh, he can throw himself into being a weirdo who's overcommitting to his own like vision of what the world is. And he takes the weirdo thing very seriously. The sketches on this show lean cringy and always feature some kind of unhinged rage. Angry sad or angry passive aggressive or angry distracted or angry and trying to be creative at the same time or angry and on the run. That's Rebecca Onion, senior editor at Slate, and she calls Tim Robinson our modern day Da Vinci of anger. One of the most fruitful premises of this show is that any public interaction, public scenario that seems kind of calm or civil or sweet on the outside always contains within itself the possibility of mayhem. So here's your small fries and your small drink. So there's a sketch that kind of stands out to me in this respect. Tim Robinson plays an unnamed driver who at a drive-thru has decided to start what's called a pay-it-forward chain. You know, I'd like to pay for the guy's meal behind me too. You know, just pay it forward. Wow, that's really nice of you. Yeah. It's supposed to, you know, create a little moment of kinship and fellowship in the day. Who knows? Maybe I'll catch on. Have a great day, sir. He's doing it in order to scam the guy behind him who he has perceived as wealthy because the person seems to have a fancy car. And then he drives real fast (laughs) to get behind the guy in the fancy car so that he will be the recipient of the next bit of largesse in the chain. Please let me go! Please let me go first! I'm doing something! His intention is to order like an absolutely absurd amount of fast food. 100 that this guy will have to pay for. So he rattles off this list. The rich guy gets out and confronts the Tim Robinson character. We're, we're not going to do this or whatever. You have to! The guy did it for you! You're the guy! Oh, just do it! You're rich! What? Hey, what the hell's going on up there? The woman who is behind Tim Robinson gets out and asks the rich guy, hey, what's going on here? And the rich guy says, oh, we're, we're doing a pay it forward chain, but this guy's trying to scam me or whatever. <laughs> the woman behind him has the exact same idea. Look what you did, you rich little And you realize a moment that people create in order to feel a sense of community, this person is is absolutely going to make like a joke of it and that he's not alone. You win. I think the show is the perfect show for the cultural moment in which we're living. We have a lot of partisan divide and a lack of shared worldview. At the same time, we have video-based social media like TikTok and Instagram, where people are sharing little clips of what's going on in public. And what's going on in public is often disturbing in real life. So there are you know, confrontations in stores between activists and employees, confrontations outside school board meetings. There are these horrible situations we've had in, in the US where people have gotten shot for tiny things like driving up the wrong driveway. Um, And so we have constant sort of in real life reminders that our neighbors are not 
are possibly not operating on the same sort of set of shared assumptions that we're operating. Um, and usually the, the end result is not humor. The end result is fear and like a feeling of disquiet. But in the show, <laughs> I think you should leave. You're watching a series of realizations that people harbor within themselves a, a whole universe of weirdness and strangeness. But despite the fact that it sometimes comes with these heightened emotions and there is conflict, the emotions and the conflict are not threatening. And to me, that makes it the perfect opportunity for catharsis. Rebecca Onion is a senior editor at Slate. Still to come here on Day 6, Rowan Atkinson says EVs have lost their luster for him. EV advocates say he's wrong. I don't think it makes sense to not do something. I feel bad because, you know, being such a great partner and having this stuff sort of dropped on you two years in a row is is very unfair. That's Rory McIlroy, one of professional golf's biggest names, speaking ahead of the Canadian Open this week. Last year, the Canadian Open was overshadowed by the launch of a new pro golf tour. Live Golf, funded by the Saudi government's private investment fund, held its first tournament with some of the game's most popular players on the same weekend as the Canadian Open. And this week, the Canadian Open is being overshadowed by another Live-related announcement, the proposed partnership between the PGA and Live. The move is a total about-face by the PGA, which had previously forced players who joined Liv to quit the PGA Tour. Until this week, both organizations were suing each other, and the rise of Liv has split professional golf, in large part because of Saudi Arabia's dismal human rights record. Whether you like it or not, the PIF are going to keep spending money in golf. At least the PGA Tour now controls how that money is spent. If you're thinking about some, you know, one of the biggest sovereign wealth funds in the world, would you rather have them as a partner or, the, or an enemy? At the end of the day, money talks and you'd rather have them as a partner. From soccer to Formula One to the WWE, Saudi Arabia is increasing its investments in international sports in what many people are calling sports washing, using sports to distract from their human rights abuses. Sports Illustrated senior writer and 60 Minutes contributor John Wertheim recently interviewed Saudi Arabia's Minister of Sport. John is currently covering the French Open. We reached him just outside the venue in Paris. John, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Thank you. Uh, it's good to be here. When you heard the PGA and Live Golf were joining forces, what was your reaction? That somebody had hacked the media site on which I had learned it. Um, but, you know, that then you pause and you say that this was shocking. This was not something that was anticipated. And yet you sort of step back and you, you say, it, it, for a variety of reasons, it actually makes a bit of sense that you could overlook some of the uh, moral complexities. Well, I mean, th- but that seems to be the main issue here. You interviewed Saudi Arabia's Prince Abdulaziz late last year and talked about the Saudis' growing investments in sports. And you asked him specifically if this was about sports washing. What was his response? Well, I mean, the, he, he really didn't even buy the concept of sports washing, that there even could be such a thing. Uh, never mind that Saudi Arabia might be involved in the practice. And they have their line, uh, the, the, the sort of the, the company line is that this is all done because sports are a great investment. And this is about entertaining the, the youth of Saudi Arabia. And there's a young population that needs to be entertained and shown a healthy lifestyle. Um, there's, there's no indication that... Um, you know, that this is done for anything other than sort of 
wholesome reasons and bringing health and wellness to uh, the young people of Saudi Arabia. But then you did specifically talk to him about the ethical lapses of this regime. You said the prince told you that, that he was working to bring people together. And you said to him, this is a country that beheaded 81 people in one day in 2022. When you pointed out that specific to him, what was his reaction? There was a, a level of, of moral relativism and whataboutism and no country's perfect. And if we only went to perfect countries, we wouldn't have sports. And by the way, in the United States, you have mass shootings, but we're not clamoring to uh, remove all sports investment in your country. You know, make, make of that what you will and then pick that apart on whatever logical grounds you care. But that was essentially the reaction is we're making this investment for the kids of Saudi Arabia and we're not perfect, but nobody else is either. And, and what do you think? What, what's, what's the reason here? Well, I mean, I think it, it's pretty obvious that uh, w- whether we call it sports washing or something more benign, that sports are part of Saudi Arabia's effort to diversify its economy, change its branding, attract tourists. This is a much bigger play because, I mean, honestly, the, and the PGA Tour learned this the hard way. The, the math just doesn't make sense. I mean, the amount of investment versus the amount of return by any conventional business model, it just doesn't make sense. But if you're not thinking about this in terms of balance sheets and media rights deals and selling tickets and selling T-shirts, but this is a much more macro rebrand an entire country than losing a few billion dollars on sports or given Lionel Messi, which, which we should talk about this. Lionel Messi declined this while we're all talking about golf. Uh, but, right. you know, I, offering athletes this $500 million contract, you're never going to make that back unless your objective is something wholly different than what every other sports league and team in the, in the world is. So, you know, it, it's complicated. I mean, here, here is a country that I think there's still a number of human rights abuses. This is still, you, know, you talk to human rights groups and they will tell you that it's great that Bruno Mars plays concerts and the WWE holds wrestling events, but that hasn't changed the human rights issues. In fact, in some mm-hmm. ways they're even worse. But on the other mm-hmm. hand, I mean, I saw with my own eyes that, there, there is progress being made. There are, you know, there are women driving. There is freedom of movement. I mean, I, th- I think it's an oversimplification to sort of say this is just flatly wrong. But I also think it's naive to say that this is being done all in an effort to make sure obese kids uh, have, have role models that are athletic. About Lionel Messi, and we, we don't know whether this announcement was made this week to coincide or to counter the, the PGA Live uh, announcement, but Saudi did make a very lucrative offer to Messi, and he is one of the best and most sought-after football players in the world. And he ended up going to Miami, and, and there is discussion about this being in part because of what his family wanted and his, specifically his wife wanted. Do you think that it was a deliberate rebuke to Saudi influence? It's a great question, because when we were in Riyadh in December, this was being talked about. So this wasn't just some sort of whimsical. I mean, this clearly had been festering and there had been some level of negotiations for months and months. I do think the timing is is quite remarkable. The same news cycle that uh, the PGA Tour makes a much different decision. I think that's certainly worthy of, uh, of acknowledging. When the initial talks between Liv and, and PGA began, th- there was a lot of pushback from some professional golfers. Did, did you think that the PGA would be chilled by some of the things that were said initially around, around the, when there were discussions last year? Well, I mean, honestly, I, I, I sort of thought it went the other way, that if there were any chance of somehow merging and getting these billions of dollars from the PIF, the PGA was throwing that out the window with this aggressive, I mean, you, you could somewhere between 
principled and xenophobic, depending on where you are. But I mean, they really leaned into Saudi Arabia as, as a problematic investor, Saudi Arabia and their dismal human rights record, the tie-ins to Khashoggi and 9-11. I thought that would have precluded. And I, th- I think right there, that's my, you know, my suspicion was that was a deal breaker. But obviously that that did not happen on either side. So does this open the door for other uh, other Saudi Arabia investments? I mean, there's so much money involved and available. And what we saw was a lot of the live athletes couldn't turn down the money. So now when it comes to other sports, should, should we be concerned about Saudi controlling interests in baseball teams or hockey teams? Cynically, I think a lot of people are wondering, well, boy, now there's a wedge and now do the Saudis now have their entree. Hey, look, they're already in golf. Right. Look at all this is it. You know, without sounding naive, if the sports are a way to liberalize a country, to improve a human rights record, to open borders, um, I mean, I do think we ought to spend a moment on a potential positive as, as sort of as, as fraught and as concerning as this news this week is. You know, that, that's a very optimistic thing to say, because it, it, you could also cynically point out the way that the Olympics has been used by so many countries to sports wash their records. And, and, and they've gotten away with it. They've hosted the Olympics in, in recent years. But, but just let me ask you this. If you're an up and coming golfer who's aspiring to play professionally and you don't want to have ties to the Saudis, what are your options now? You either uh, have, have this fun to you that, listen, this is just an investor the same way your portfolio might have Saudi securities that you don't know about. You're not going to have to play there. But no, I mean, re- realistically, that's part of the issue here. If you are a golfer that for any reason, for, for principled reasons, or you simply can't make the cut, there are not a lot of options. I mean, this is sort of going to become one overarching tour. And if you are not comfortable with the level of Saudi investment and you would like a professional golf career, it's a big step down to the next circuit. So, um, I mean, I think, I think that's a really, I think we're going to see that. And I think there are a lot of golfers who, uh, have a lot of questions that didn't go answered at the player meeting the other day, uh, in your neck of the woods in Toronto. John Wertheim, really nice to talk to you. Thank you for being with us. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. John Wertheim is a senior writer with Sports Illustrated. That's British comedian Rowan Atkinson, better known as Mr. Bean, being unusually vocal in that role, which was kind of a theme for him this week. Last Saturday, Rowan Atkinson published an opinion piece in the Guardian newspaper. In it, he talked about his love of cars. He was an early adopter of electric vehicles, and now he's come to doubt if they're really the best choice for cutting carbon emissions. Turns out Rowan Atkinson has a degree in electrical and electronic engineering, as well as a master's degree in control systems. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's right about everything he wrote. Kara Clareman is the CEO of Plug and Drive, a Canadian nonprofit that advocates for electric vehicles. Kara, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Hi there, Brent. Thanks for inviting me. What was your first reaction to Rowan Atkinson's critique of EVs? Well, my first reaction is, oh no, just another another reason what people will give for why they aren't uh, ready to make the switch. 
<laughs> but he he is a celebrity, so you know it, it's not exactly the same thing as something that's been published in Consumer Reports. But he also writes that his first university degree was in electrical and, and electronic engineering, right. and that he has a master's in control systems. Right. So shouldn't some attention be paid to the things he says in this article? Well, sure, that definitely gives him a little bit more legitimacy. Although I would still say. He's no climate scientist, and he's making a lot of statements about the emission outcomes of the different technologies. It's where he kind of goes astray. Well, let's let's look at what he says about the manufacturing of electric vehicles themselves, because he says if you zoom out and look at the bigger picture, including the manufacturing of these cars and the environmental burden attached to that, then the situation with EVs is actually worse for the environment. Does he have a point there? No, (laughs) actually, that's where he zooms in instead of out. What he says is factually correct, which is, yes, the manufacturing of the vehicles actually is more energy intensive than an equivalent ICE or internal combustion engine. But if you actually zoom out, which is look at the life cycle assessment of the vehicle, most of the emissions of a vehicle come from the driving, not from the making. So in fact, the total life cycle assessment done, by the way, by many, many scientists around the world shows that the EV is still significantly better for the environment, even when you take into account the fact that making a battery is more energy intensive than making an ICE engine. Well, let's look at one of the figures that he says he got from Volvo, which is that greenhouse gas emissions created during the production of an electric car are 70% higher or around that than when manufacturing a petrol one. What do you think of that? Is that accurate? It could be. And of course, you have to remember that the emissions of the manufacturing are very much contingent on where that manufacturing takes place. So if it's in a location where the electricity comes from burning coal, for example, the emissions will be much higher. If, for example, that manufacturing took place in Ontario, where a lot of electric vehicles are going to be made, the emissions would be extremely low because, again, our electricity emissions are extremely low. Mm -hmm. But the second point is what I already mentioned. Most of the emissions, 90%, come from the driving, not from the making. So in that 10%, it's more emissions. But you have to look at the full life cycle assessment of the vehicle. Let's look at what he says about, about lithium batteries. They're absurdly heavy, he says. And he is looking for a different way forward. He's saying we really want to rethink this until there's an alternative to the lithium battery. What do you think about that? What do you think of, about his problem with lithium? I find it a very binary way of looking at it. I mean, that's sort of like saying, let's make the perfect the enemy of the good. We have something better than the internal combustion engine right now available that can drop emissions significantly in much of the world. And of course, we should continue to research and try to figure out something even better. And I hope he's right. I hope he's right that hydrogen might be the thing. But I don't think it makes sense to not do something and wait for some nirvana that may or may not uh, ever come. And the challenge with hydrogen is and has always been, first of all, the infrastructure. We don't have it. And of course, hydrogen also requires a lot of energy to make. And again, you're back to the electricity source. Same problem. If the electricity is dirty, the hydrogen is dirty. 
But but you you mentioned that, that there's no infrastructure in place for hydrogen at this point. How do you compare that to the infrastructure for the charging of the electric vehicle, which is still in development in, in many jurisdictions? True, true. But if you think of it, electricity infrastructure is everywhere. Uh-huh. We already have that. I mean, to be honest, the charger is basically the last mile. And you'd be surprised if you look on PlugShare or ChargeHub, which are the apps that, you know, EV drivers use. If you live in urban, suburban Canada, there's chargers everywhere. The only place that really we still have quite a bit of work to do is really in remote, more remote locations. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the infrastructure has actually improved a lot and and shouldn't be really a barrier to adoption at this point. I want to run something by you that Atkinson wrote here. He, He says, an environmentalist once said to me, if you really need a car, buy an old one and use it as little as possible. What do you think of that as an alternative to to buying a new EV? I mean, sure. Again, if we're talking about would it be better if we all walked and biked and took transit? Yes, of course it would be. Nobody is claiming that the EV is some kind of perfect for the environment option. But if you are going to drive and the alternative is a gas car versus an electric car, an electric car is significantly better. And it's interesting because in the comments below, uh, you know, his article, uh, someone wrote, well, you're really cherry picking the facts to make your point. And he said, well, sure, doesn't everybody do that? (laughs) And, uh, you know, that's sort of true in this case. So Rowan Atkinson has a huge profile and a lot of people really, really adore him. Do, yeah. do, you, do you worry that he will dissuade Canadians from doing what you think is the right thing? I mean, he might. I hope people will sort of say, hey, I should get, you know, my scientific information, my climate information from scientists like the Union of Concerned Scientists and not from a celebrity. But I mean, he will. He probably will influence some people. When you saw Mr. Bean's byline, did you think the piece would be funnier? I was hoping it would be funnier, (laughs) but it isn't too funny. I mean, the reality is everything we do has an impact on the environment and nothing's for nothing. And, you know, he does make some valid points. I mean, if you drive very little, uh, it might make sense to hold on to an old gas car for a couple more years. But if you drive the Canadian average or more, 20,000 kilometers a year, That's significant emissions you could be reducing by choosing an EV. Kara Clareman, thank you very much for being with us. It's my pleasure. Kara Clareman is the CEO of Plug and Drive, a Canadian nonprofit that advocates for electric vehicles. Still to come on day six, she grew up on the streets of Manhattan. Now, playwright Sharon Washington is up for a Tony for putting them on stage in New York, New York. You know, there were all these stories that I grew up hearing. Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the podcast Q with Tom Power, where we talk to all kinds of artists, actors, writers, musicians, painters. We had Green Day on the other day talking about their huge album, American Idiot. Nicole Byer came on to talk about ADHD and comedy. And then there's Dan Levy. While we were talking about filmmaking, we talked about his insecurities. I sometimes feel like I have this desire to, like, perform, to be a version of myself that people might like. Listen to Q with Tom Power to hear your favorite artists as they truly are, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brent Bambury. You're listening to Day 6 from CBC Radio. We are on public radio stations across the United States. You can live stream us on the CBC Listen app, and we're online at cbc.ca slash day6.
We begin with a public service announcement. Internet League Baseball appears to be sinking, just not through the three-dimensional reality that you might be familiar with. Yes, you heard that right. Internet League Baseball with a blur. And it requires some explaining. Baseball was an online simulation game that was baseball adjacent. A league of 20-ish teams faced off in hourly games that played out kind of like a fantasy sports league. The first thing you'll do is pick which of these pretend teams you support, from the New York Millennials to the Kansas City Breathmints, and you earn coins every time that your team wins. But fans of baseball will tell you that the wins, the losses, the stats, and the coins, they were just the backdrop for the real game. The umpire's eyes begin to glow white. One of them goes rogue and incinerates the garage's star player, Jalen Hotdog Fingers. An ancient evil awakens as the Hellmouth swallows the Moab desert, forever changing the Moab sunbeams into the Hellmouth sunbeams. So yeah, think fantasy baseball meets Dungeons and Dragons with a healthy dose of horror to go along with it all. It was definitely weird. Baseball fans loved it. They crafted intricate backstories and reams of fan art and Blaseball's creators embrace the lore. But if you're thinking, hey, that sounds pretty fun, I have some bad news. This week, Blaseball's developer, The Game Band, announced that after nearly three years, Blaseball would be coming to an end. So we asked Quentin Smith, the anchor of the Blaseball Roundup, to bid farewell to a game ahead of its time. When I first encountered Blaseball, I had no idea what I was looking at, and that, that lasted for quite some time. In time, I managed to figure out that I was looking at a simulated baseball league with some of the dumbest named sports teams I'd ever seen. There's the Canada Moist Talkers, there's the Charleston Shoe Thieves, the Moab Sunbeams, the Hawaii Fridays. Allow me to endeavour to explain what baseball is. It is a website that is run by a computer program, and the computer program simulates different baseball teams playing matches against one another at incredible speed. And also, uh, because this is all happening digitally, the designers can have some fun with it, so Blaseball also has this democratic element where the people who are watching Blaseball can vote on changes to the sport. Like, you know, there are four bases in a game of baseball. What if there were five, and where would you put the fifth? What if deadly weather started raining from the sky? What if your favourite team had blood that was electricity and let them zap, you know, strikes out of existence? The developers came up with a million demented possible tweaks to the sport, and as fans, we enacted a good third of them. One of the things that was interesting about baseball was the tone because it was deeply sinister, almost like a Lovecraftian, meaning sort of like resembling the uncanny eldritch gods that were envisioned by H.P. Lovecraft. Because if you're a fan of like quite a commercial sport like the NFL, you'll be aware that your sport is completely controlled by like powerful commercial bodies. So what baseball did within its sort of in-universe fiction, it imagined the sort of gods of the sport as literal gods, as these like dark, unknowable creatures who were playing the sport, but also playing with you and, and drawing power from the fans and um, enacting kind of their will on your players. In the darkly comedic world of baseball, you might be a fan of the Hawaii Fridays, and then a god shows up and traps your star pitcher in a giant peanut shell from which they do not escape for like two seasons. 
But maybe the thing about baseball that it's going to be remembered most fondly for are what's called the fan works, which are the things that fans made online to sort of honour the game and their favourite players. Because within baseball, a player is just a name, a very silly name, like Jessica Telephone or Landry Violence or something, um, and some stats. That's all they are. So you don't get a picture of them. So fans immediately started drawing fan art or like webcomics or music, you know. There was a band called The Garages that did entire in-universe albums about things that happened within the baseball simulator. We got our thumbs, we got our bats. What could go wrong? No God, just baseball forever, forever. Frankly, through the fan works, baseball turned from like a spreadsheet full of data into something that felt very, very real to those of us at home during the pandemic watching imaginary baseball for some reason. There's some discussion online as to whether that only could have happened during a year where we were all stuck at home going completely nuts. But whether baseball was a quirk of the pandemic or not, it just felt wildly exciting to be part of something. And and frankly, what is the reason that human beings like, you know, real baseball or hockey or whatever? It's fun to be part of something, to learn a, a language that allows you to speak to other fans of that sport. And that's exactly what baseball was. It's just that baseball had, you know, more blood, more eldritch gods, more sort of like um, quantum physics related rule interactions but it was just this magnificent shared hallucination that we were all having together. And also, if there are any Hawaii Fridays fans listening to this, uh, TGIF, uh, Fridays Forever, love you guys. Rest in violence, baseball. Quentin Smith is a YouTuber with People Make Games, and he was also the anchor for the Blaseball Roundup. Even with just a few bars, I'm guessing you know this song. Start spreading the news. I'm leaving today. I want to be a part of it. New York, New York. New York, New York was made famous by Frank Sinatra but it was actually written for the 1977 movie by the same name, starring Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. And now, the song is the basis of a new Tony-nominated musical on Broadway. New York, New York opened in March, and it has nine nominations for tomorrow's Tony Awards. Like the original song, the stage version is composed by Broadway legend John Kander with his late musical partner Fred Ebb. Lin-Manuel Miranda has added some new lyrics to some new songs for the Broadway version, and the book, which is the script played out in between songs, was co-written by David Thompson and Sharon Washington. For most of her career, Sharon has been an actor, with roles on Law and & Order and in Joker and Die Hard with a Vengeance. I spoke to her in 2016 about her autobiographical play, Feeding the Dragon. It told the amazing story of her childhood, growing up, living in a New York City public library. And yes, she really did live in an apartment in the library with her family. 
Now, Sharon's up for a Tony for Best Book for a Musical. Sharon Washington, good morning. Welcome to Day 6. Good morning. It's lovely to... I was going to say it was lovely to see you, Brent, but it's lovely to hear you, Brent. <laughs> well, it's lovely to hear you again because you were with us back in 2016 and we talked to you about Feeding the Dragon, which was, uh, I, I think that might have been the first play that you wrote? It was. It was the first play I wrote and um, it was a solo show and it was about my life. So it was very personal. And now here we are all these years later and I'm on a much bigger show, but it's still at base about the city I know and love and grew up in. So it's still connected to the personal for me. Yeah, it's a little bit, it's, it, it's, it's personal, but it's also on a huge scale because you've been nominated for a Tony for your first Broadway book. So that's a pretty big deal. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. <laughs> How does it feel? It feels surreal. It really does. It feels like, um, it feels natural. And I say that in the way that when things happen in the time that they're supposed to happen and it feels so right. This is a group of people, a group of creatives that I've worked with before. We worked together on Scottsboro Boys. I didn't work with them as a writer. I was the actor in that, but I was mm -hmm. creating the role of the lady in Candor and Epps Scottsboro Boys. Um, this was the same team. So I've known them for a decade. And so it felt like an extension of that, of being in that collaboration. So I don't think... Well, I know at the time I didn't realize the size of this venture, <laughs> yeah. um, but I knew and I trusted the group that I was working with. And John Cantor says, there's nothing better than making art with your friends. I, I, you mentioned John Cantor and he is a Broadway legend. He is yes. 96 years old, a composer who co-created Chicago and Cabaret and wrote the original song, New York, New York, which, which I think most people remember from the movie, the source material for this show. Yes. But what was it like to work with somebody as storied and as venerable as Mr. Cantor? Well, the thing about John Kander is that with all of that, with all of, yes, he is an absolute legend and yes, he is storied and he is an icon, but he doesn't see himself that way. Hmm. And he actually gets embarrassed when you talk about him that way. And he has the same joy of creating in the room that we did, like, like it's the first time he was doing it. He has, he said, I wouldn't do it if it wasn't, you know, why are we doing this? If it's not, mm -hmm. if it's not fun, if it's not exciting, he gets the same nervous energy we all do. He'll mm. he turn to me during rehearsals and say, oh my gosh, what are we all doing here? Do you think it's, do you think it's any good? You know, I mean, it's the same. And in that he was so, um, he was so generous by sharing really the true um, sense of creation as an artist, I guess I'm trying to say, that it never really leaves you, no matter whether you're 26 or 96. I, you talked earlier about your own personal connection to this project, but also to the story that's being told here. And I think if people who know the film or remember anything about the film, remember that it's essentially the story of these two artists mm -hmm. who are played by Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. But in this show... It's a broader stage and it's a broader palette in a lot of ways. Can you explain what happens on stage in the book that you create or co-created? Sure. This? sure. Um, what we wanted to do, and we being the creative team of John Kander, Susan Stroman, uh, David Thompson, Lin-Manuel Miranda, our creative team, our producers, what we all wanted to do was really make it a love letter to the New York that we know and love, to all the diversity and the multiple stories. And it was really about how in New York your life can change. And I 
in a New York minute, like literally. Mm-hmm. We center, of course, on Jimmy and Francine, their story of meeting mm-hmm. and musicians and artists falling in love. But the city is also one of the characters because that's what it is. New York has its own personality and um, how that influenced their life and their love and their pursuit of their art. And then as others come into their lives, especially at that particular time in 19, we we're placed in 1946, 47. Right. So um, it was a very um, particular time in the city. We were coming out of the war. It, it actually parallels very much so and intentionally with the city coming out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But the the whole idea of of New York kind of being in your blood. And the last time we spoke to you, mm-hmm. we were talking about how you grew up living above the branch of a New York City library, the St. Agnes branch on Amsterdam Avenue. That's correct. Amsterdam and 81st Street. Yes. So what does it mean for you personally to be involved in a musical that is a love letter to New York City and the people who live there when you grew up on those streets yourself? It's an absolute extraordinary opportunity. And I'm so glad I was asked to join this team. And I have a very unique perspective. And I think part of the reason I was asked to join the team was for my very specific New York view, right, of my viewpoint of being a native New Yorker and going back so many generations. And I grew up listening to these stories, these stories of my uncle who was a longshoreman, my mother who was a secretary, there was an artist down the street, there was my piano teacher, Mrs. Gottfried, who came from one of the camps. You know, there were all these stories that I grew up hearing, all of these different people and nationalities, and we were all in this little block of the Upper West Side, and Mm -hmm. I just got to experience the world through them and their stories. And that's what New York City is. That's who your neighbors are. And I wanted to see that on stage, right? I wanted to see those stories. I remember seeing a a grand piano in the photos from your family's apartment in the library. How do you think your parents would feel about you being nominated for a Tony (laughs) for a musical about the streets that you grew up in? I think they'd be beside themselves. I know my mother would be trailing around me right now at every party I've ever been invited to. And um, it, it's it's about being seen. It's about stories that were invisible being visible. And that was one of the reasons that I wrote Feeding the Dragon is because people were always so surprised that there was a family, there was a story within the story of the library. So mm-hmm. it's those things that make all of us special and connect all of us. It's, oh, that's so, it, oh, wow, tell me more about that. So I think um, in a time where sometimes we are divided as other, I think the more we can tell our stories and show that we are more similar than we are dissimilar, I think is a really good thing. And I think by showing how all of these people in New York City come together, John Cander, again, I will quote him, who says, New York City is the greatest social experiment on the planet. Hmm. Everybody's natural enemy lives here, (laughs) and we manage not to kill each other. (laughs) And that's really true. I I want to ask you about the song New York, New York, because John Candier said that he and Fred Ebb wrote it in about 45 <laughs> minutes and that he's he seems like he's got an ambivalent relationship to the song. It's certainly not his most favorite song of, of all the many amazing pieces of music that he's created. So how did he make peace with the song to bring it back for this musical? 
he just had to because we just told him, well, you have to. We're, we're sorry, but this is the anthem. The new music that he, you know, he's written new songs for this show. He's written songs with Lynn. So it's all just wonderful and beautiful. And he gets excited by very different things. But we all had to keep saying to him, and you can forget it because New York, New York is is the anthem. That's what people want to hear. And I think when he saw what it does to people by the end of the show. I think New Yorkers are really feeling like we need that. It is a gift to the city. When he thought of it that way as a flip of other, you know, that it's maybe not his favorite, but that this gift to the city was something special that he could give to New Yorkers, then he got okay with it. He was like, okay, I guess I kind of get it. Sharon Washington, do you know what you're wearing tomorrow? Um, I do. Um, I'm very, I'm very excited. I don't get, I don't get fluffed up that often, but I'm, I'm very excited. I feel a little like Cinderella going to the ball. Absolutely. I really hope you have a great night and thank you very much. It was wonderful to talk to you again and congratulations. Thank you, Brent. It was lovely to talk to you as well. Sharon Washington is the co-writer of the musical New York, New York. She's nominated for a Tony award for best book for a musical. The Tonys take place tomorrow, but without a script due to the ongoing strike by the Writers Guild of America. from the headlines. And here it is, Rift from the Headlines, our weekly quiz. Three riffs linked by one story in the news. If you guess the story that links the riffs, you can win a day six tote bag. First, here's a recap. This is last week's clue. The Beatles, paperback writer, crossed that line by Howard Jones and Kardashian by Daniel Bloom. And Jerry Terzansky of Wellington, Ontario, guessed the headline that we're looking for. Kim Kardashian crosses the Writers Guild of America picket line to film American Horror Story. Congratulations, Jerry. A Day 6 tote bag will be on its way to you soon. And now, here's this week's clue. story that connects those riffs, email us your answer. Put riff from the headlines in the subject. Send it to day6 at cbc.ca. Please include your mailing address. One right answer will be picked at random. The prize is a day6 tote bag. And you can always hear the clues again anytime at cbc.ca slash day6. Ah! 
And that's our show for this week. Day 6 was produced by Lori Allen, Mickey Edwards, Pedro Sanchez, and Yamri Tusfu Tedessa. Our digital producer is Paul Hantiak. Our senior producer is Gord Westmacott. Thanks to Susan McKenzie in Montreal for her help this week. I'm Brent Bambury. It's two days to Game 5 in the NBA Finals. Nine days to Juneteenth. And seven days till we meet again on Day 6. It was just this magnificent shared hallucination that we were all having together. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.